Blog Talk Radio. Month, and we are celebrating tonight yet another uh, franchise headlined by a wonderful African American actor named Eddie Murphy, the Beverly Hills Cop franchise. This was one of those franchises that I watched as a kid when it first came out. Loved them as an adult, rewatched them in preparation for this show, and was reminded how great they really are. They are a true treasure. Uh, a, a return to filmmaking that is that I that I feel like we've uh, in many ways we've departed from. Of course, t- talking with me tonight is my co-host with the mostest. Uh, he is Mr. Sean Comer. How do you do, sir? Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi. Sean. You're not, and welcome to what I hope doesn't eventually become one of the last internet review shows to not be sodomized by copyright right. <laughs> we are trying to min- we are trying to minimize uh, the the things that can uh, gobble us up here, get us gobbled up. But um, so I, I was serious when I said that in the intro. I watched this as a kid. You know, as a kid, I, uh, I it was enjoyable, and that was my, that was all I thought about it. You know, Eddie Murphy's funny. <laughs> I like the car chases. Um, as an adult. I'm, I'm going to throw a couple of things out there, some of which we talked about before the show started. But I was thinking a lot as I watched as I watched the first Beverly Hills Cop uh, about Die Hard, you know, and Die Hard is always mentioned to people as uh, oh, it's the most perfect action movie ever. And this isn't strictly an action movie; it's an action comedy. But I, I would venture to say, I don't know how you feel about this. But I would venture to say that the first Beverly Hills Cop movie is pretty darn near perfect. It, it, to me, it's as perfect as people seem to think uh, Die Hard is. I'll give you, uh, you know, let, let's kick that around a bit. What do you think about that? Um, uh, 80s comedies go, especially as Eddie Murphy 80s comedies go, I really, I really can't say a bad thing about it. And because, like you and I were saying right before we came on the air, this was a time when comedies was truly effortless. I don't think it's a stretch to say that for all forms of comedy, uh, it was really a golden age that hasn't been matched in the now 26 years uh, that have followed that have followed 1990. 
and I, that's not to say that every every movie that came out during this time was uh, was an utter masterpiece, on par with uh, Charlie Chaplin and uh, Laurel and Laurel and Hardy. Uh, uh, nor to say that every comic that was trying to make it big during this time was just destined to be huge and still stands up today as a bona fide legend. A lot of them do, some of them don't. But it was a time when a lot of great comedies felt like they didn't have to necessarily stretch so far or try so hard as a lot of movies nowadays do. I feel like a lot of them nowadays uh, try to inject so much that's so serious and so grounded and try so hard to be (laughs) so smart and so topical um, that, I mean, right down to even even movies that try to be parody or satire that just devolve into not necessarily making... Referential jokes that make sense, but they're just references for the sake of, hey, that's a thing. That's a thing that is. I know that thing. Ha ha ha. I love that thing. It's funny they're making fun of that thing that I know. It's, you had a lot more movies that were guys like Eddie Murphy who could go out there and just have fun which is so evident in this movie in the fact, or when you consider the reality, that he improvised the vast majority of his laugh lines. It, it, wasn't any, it wasn't, the jokes weren't anything that was necessarily written for him. I mean, Eddie Murphy, um, as I was saying to my girlfriend earlier tonight, if you were to kind of follow the line of really influential, groundbreaking black comics. And forgive me if I get the actual order of the Greek philosophers out of line here, but um, I've always thought of it as Red Fox was sort of the Socrates. Uh, he was the, you know, the, 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 comic of, the comic of comics, the philosopher of philosophers, as it will. And it almost sounded like I just, like I very nearly said the falafeler of falafelers. <laughs> um, but, so, you, you have Red Fox as basically your Socrates. Uh, my opinion, Richard Pryor would be your Plato. He was the one who was arguably the greatest comic to be directly influenced by Red. And then, from there, as you go down from Richard Pryor... That's when you get down to Eddie Murphy kind of being the Aristotle of the bunch. Uh, he was the big, really energetic, brilliant, mainstream breakout who was raw and just not, a, which, of course, name of one of his most famous stand-up specials, <laughs> who was just not afraid to go there. And I don't know. I don't. I guess you could say that if you were to kind of go further down that line, you could say that the likes of uh, cats like Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle 
and even the likes of Steve Harvey, D.L. Hughley, Bernie Mac, Cedric the Entertainer, well, they were kind of like the uh, the professors of philosophy. Uh, they would be like your your Immanuel Kant, your Benjamin Disraeli, so uh, kind of that kind of of, gener- of generation of, of that era. And then if you go further down from further down from that, you got guys like I don't know Tracy Morgan, who I always I guess if we're to follow the anal- the metaphor, the analogy would sort of be the clothes, cigarette smoking, patchouli stinking douchebag philosophy student that <laughs> never manages to be kind of one iota as brilliant as all the people he's clearly trying to play off. So I throw in maybe about half to three fourths of the peop of the people who ever starred on um oh Fuck me sideways. What's the name of the of the BET stand-up show? Um, not Death Comedy Jam. That was actually the good one, um, and that wasn't on BET either. Um, BET. Fuck it. I can't remember. Um, uh, pretty much anybody who wasn't on the the BET stand-up showcase, except for Earthquake and Bruce Bruce, they were hilarious. You know, all props to them. But. Okay, Eddie Griffin. Eddie Griffin would be another would be another one of the patchouli stinking hipster philosophers who who takes his degree and, met, and makes a passable li- living selling me fries on my lunch break. Did I miss you um, saying Bill Cosby somewhere in there, or did you purposely leave him out? Uh, you know what? My the one thing about Cosby is uh, don't get me wrong. Uh, for 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 all you youngins who just know the cause from all the rape jokes, um, once upon a time before even the the ghastly sweaters and the Kodak film and the Jello pudding pops <laughs> and the million uncles who are all famous jazz musicians, um, you know. He was. He started off in the '60s on a show called I Spy, and he parlayed that into a great stand-up career of his own. However, and he was kind of a breed apart from the likes of, like I said, like Red and Richard and Eddie, and down the line from the uh, like Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle and the original Kings of Comedy, because he was one of the guys that really proved very successfully his now infamous extracurricular rapey-rapey activities aside that he could be funny without being raunchy. He was funny, but he wasn't really subversive. Um, He was funny in a very real way that anybody could laugh at. I mean, there's a reason why his protege, if you really look at his most successful protege is arguably Sinbad. Because he's the same way. He's another guy that can make anybody from five to sixty-five laugh just with energy and de- and delivery and knowing that and knowing that he's funny and not really ever having to delve into blue humor. Um, so no, I wouldn't rule him out, but I would just say that he's a whole separate school apart from everybody that I just mentioned. But getting back to the movie, though, 
Um, I mean, Eddie at this time, it, it, it pained me. It, it, it hurt my damn 80 child heart to know there's a whole generation that is only going to know Eddie Murphy as the ass clown from Dad Daycare. <laughs> because there, there was a whole different guy that came before that that set a bar for all for not just all black comics, pretty much all comics to follow in the 80s. And the amazing thing about it is, um, I had another conversation with a very dear friend of mine recently, and we talked about how uh, a lot of the funniest people in the world tragically are so funny because they're covering up a lot of inner pain and a lot of very private private demons that just nobody else ever gets a chance to see. Uh, the first one that always comes to mind is, is Robin Williams, uh, he was also, who also unfortunately is one of the first guys to come to mind when people think of comics for whom a lot of their comedy comes from being on just all of the drugs. I, like, like some of them, every damn drug in existence. I mean, as a side note, happy would have been 48th birthday, Mitch Hedberg. God damn, we miss you. Um, but one of the funniest things about this movie is the fact that uh, Eddie was an adamant at this time non-drug user. Um, he was uh, he, he kept himself as clean as could be, and in fact, on set, everybody tried to offer him uh, coffee repeatedly during long shoots. And he kept refusing to do it, refusing to do it. And finally, uh, he relented during one of the Detroit Police Department station house scenes and took kind of his first couple fifths. And from there, he just kind of dialed it up, and we got the super cops speech. Um, but, that's, but that's the incredible thing about it. Is you watch the rest of the movie, and you realize the man is so dialed in, and in fifth gear so much of this movie, like, like he's in Robert Williams mode, and he's stone sober. It's incredible. But, so you've got that. And then you've got these great performances that are surrounding him. Most notably, you've got Judge Reinhold, who for that time was so easy to appreciate because he could be kind of a doofy Hackler, over-enthusiastic sidekick, or as Gremlin proved, he could be an utter flaming family-sized douchebag. And he could play either one totally effectively. Uh, he, he could just switch gears so effortlessly, just, just like, you know, dance across that line like he's Homer Simpson going, America, Australia, America, Australia. You know, until they decide to start putting him in lead role, in which case that was like someone smacking him and going, we don't tolerate that kind of crap in America, sir. Um, but you have that. You have, um, uh, forgive me, Mark, I'm, I'm going to fuck his name up, and I'm going to count on you to correct me here, and feel free to throw in the wrong song for old time's sake if you want to. Um, Gary Hill, I think, who was an actual Detroit uh police veteran, a very decorated one, who played uh, the very stereotypical 80s cop, Inspector Todd, uh, the, 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 one, the, the one that was delivering our 
are essentially you're a loose cannon fully, but you can't result. You know, those kinds of speeches. Um, you have Gil, by the way. Paul Wright. Yeah. You, you, what was it? It was Gil. Gil Hill. Gil Hill. I knew it was something with a G. Okay, and, and thank you. Thank you for the mercy of not subjecting me to the wrong song for all the times I unfortunately inflicted that upon you. Um, you had uh, you had Paul Reiser just being kind of a delightful little semi ball, and this was, of course, years before his NBC sitcom Mad at You was. I know About. the actual name. So I know that oh, so. I call it Mad at You. I call it Mad at You because half the show was Helen Hunt ripping him a new one, him not throwing her out a window. Um, <laughs> I, I grew up with that show. I know what it was called. Um, but um, it, it, it all came together, and it coalesced so beautifully because it wasn't trying to be anything more important than it was. It wasn't beating anybody over the over the head with message or trying to make Axel into this full-fledged action, full-fledged action hero. Um, it was... You referred to before we went on the air as it being uh, the movie that kind of launched Eddie Murphy to start him, and I, I, I kind of gently disagreed and said, uh, you know, I, uh, no, no, I think it was trading. I think it was trading places that really did, that really did that. But in all fairness, I could see where you're coming from. In that, this is probably one of the very first movies, along with. Trading Places and The Golden Child and Coming to America that everybody thinks of when they think of Eddie Murphy at his funniest. Well, here's the difference. Um, one could make the argument, I think they'd be wrong, but one could make the argument that with Trading Places, um, if Eddie Murphy doesn't work in that movie, at least he had Dan Aykroyd and Jamie Lee Curtis to lean on. Right. Plus some other, right. plus some other you know, uh, comic actors, you know, play the old, you know, the old rich guys and all that. So, I, I so when you look at Trading Places, more of an ensemble cast. It's you know at the very least it's a duo between Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. Whereas Beverly Hills Cop, um, if he doesn't, if if Eddie Murphy isn't working, the whole the whole thing goes to plaid. Um, it's really his. It, it's really his coming out party in terms of being. Um, a leading man. Yeah, it was the first movie in that he was asked with character. Right, right. Because even with right. even 48 Hours, you have the same problem again with it's him and Nick Nolte. Again, he doesn't have to work because you have Nick Nolte there. Um, no. this, this is it. This is his thing on on his shoulders. I, well, well, right, right. I mean, it, was, it wasn't so much that he kind of had to keep pace with all these other established actors in this one, like with... Uh, like he had to keep step with a prime Dan Aykroyd, or you know he had to he had to play off um, Nick Nolte's hard hard nosed straight man. Uh, hell, I mean if we're to kind of drag Coming to America into this, you could even say, oh, oh, he didn't even have somebody who could kind of match his style quite like Arsenio Hall did. No, this this was the Eddie Murphy show, and everybody kind of had to keep pace. With him, or at the very, or at the very least, um, dance with him so much that nobody, that his toes weren't getting stepped on, and from from beginning to end, he just executed the whole damn thing master. Oh, um, also worth pointing out, uh, 
say, say hello to that lovely little Damon Wayans cameo. There's that Damon Wayans as I left Artifact. Yeah, um, he, he was the man who instigated the, the famous banana in the tailpipe gag. You know, just, just to point it up real quick, you know, as a kid, I didn't really relate. I, I had no relationship to the Wayans family until In Living Color came out. Um, and then I think I, I'm no. There was there were there were two things that brought me to the Wayans family. One was the Robert Townsend um, stand-up special, where it was like Robert Townsend and his partners in crime, and he talked about Hollywood mm-hmm. scene at that point. But you know that, that he brought up the whole Wayans family, um, at, you know, at, at, or the very early on Wayans family. Um, but then there was also in living that that then went into in living color, uh, where you know the the rest of the Wayans family showed up. So I had no relationship to Damon Wayans when I first saw uh, Beverly Hills Cop. So it's funny all these years later, after all these years of knowing the Wayans family and appreciating at least some of their humor um, and what they've given the world of entertainment, I laughed my ass off seeing Damon Wayans in that part where I know I had no reaction to it the very first time. Like as a kid, I didn't care. That's it. You know what? Damon Wayans and um, uh, Keenan Ivory Wayans are really about the only ones I can stand. I I have no use for Marlon and Sean Wayans. Absolutely none. <laughs> Do you remember the um, show they had? The, um, oh, I, you know what? I, <laughs> <laughs> the only thing they, I really loved about that show was the fact that it started off with them doing a very kind of good times or what's happening type of 70s black ensemble comedy opening. And then and then it, it ended with them just assaulting cameraman. And it was a lead-in to one of the best shows in the history of television, Homeboys from Outer Space. <laughs> which... which which I remember, I remember that one, not only because it was such a goddamn unforgettably horrible show, but I remember it because um, in, in Chris Rock's first book, Rock This, he referenced that as as being convinced that it was the result of a bet between two studio executives. That one of them couldn't get a show called Homeboys from Outer Space made. Um... Oh, um, a couple more quick little cast notes, just kind of apropos of nothing, with with no apologies for my lack of a segue. Uh, first off, also, um, kids, and I say kids because I'm talking to you younger folk millennials out there who didn't grow up with the greatest TGIF lineups of all damn time. Um, if you've never heard of a little show called Perfect Strangers, then you've never heard of one of the great gifts to comedy named Bronson Pinchot. Um, before Bauchi Bartokamos was even a twinkle in somebody's eye, here he was again, just once again being an absolute goofy-ass show stealer as um, the, the, art ga- the art gallery employee Serge um, because uh, after the director the director heard it, he fell so in love with the character that he actually uh, kind of restructured the scene so that 
he could so that he could get more screen time. In, in which the other, the other actor who's supposed to be in the scene shows up pretty much just to give Bronson another joke to play off of. Um, it, it's absolutely utterly brilliant. Uh, but the other thing that's worth pointing out, uh, I'm going to go ahead and get our what might have been casting out of the way here. Um, you're ready, folks. Wrap, wrap your heads in saran wrap, cover the walls, put the tarps up, get the children and pets out of the way because it's about to blow your fucking mind. This movie was not written with Eddie Murphy in mind. Uh, in fact, it would be hard to even call him one of the first choices because he was actually in competition with not one, not two, not three, five is too many, so we'll say four Academy Award nominees. Well, nominees slash winners in some cases. Uh, because originally, Mark, um, yeah, well, I'm not even make a guess, because I'm sure you probably got the IMDb trivia up in, front, up in front of you anyway. The original choice to play Axel Foley was Sylvester fucking Stallone. <laughs> unfortunately, not only did he leave the project, he decided that on the, on the way out the door, he was going to nick some of the ideas from the script to make a little 1986 movie called Cobra. Yes, really. No Beverly Hills Cop, no Cobra. Tune in next week when we explain to you how without Andy Hall, we never get over the top. <laughs> also, also competing with Eddie for the role. In fact, he one who could arguably be considered the silver medal to play the part was Mickey Rourke, who at that time was in a position to where he looked like he was an absolute shoo-in to be Hollywood's next great leading man. Long before he became a boxer with a fucked up face, he had to revive his career with roles in Sin City and The Wrestler. And finally, rounding out our hopefuls for this, for this role were a couple guys you've probably never heard of from a little mafia movie that was quickly forgotten by some hack named Francis Ford Coppola. Um, yeah, uh, this role actually could have been played by one of two Corleone brothers, namely either Al Pacino or James Caan. They were both definitely under consideration for it. Um, and last but not least, I'm going to uh, round out this Happy Go Trivia out Hour with two little factoids. Number one, uh, why did Sylvester Stallone quit the film? Why did he decide instead to go make one of his most laughable of his many laughably bad 80s action movies? Well, very simple. It's because he had a disagreement over what kind of OJ they were going to going to stock in his trailer. Yes, really. And in the meantime, it also time it also bears noting just to kind of make a point about just how damn huge this movie became. At one point, this was the highest-grossing R-rated film released in the United States of all time, up until The Matrix Reloaded eclipsed it in 2003. 19 years down the line. 
And, of course, the IMDb trivia also likes to make to make note that if you factor in inflation, uh, it would actually still be the third most attended R-rated film, film ever, behind only 1972's The Godfather and 1973's The Exorcist. Very good, Sean. Um, Thank you, all. That brings us... That brings us to our plot synopsis. Um, so we have Axel Foley is played by Eddie Murphy, who's a reckless Detroit police detective. That's what they tell us. Um, he's uh, doing this thing operation un- unauthorized with <laughs> with um, uh, evidence from another case. As a matter of fact, uh, it goes to, it goes to plaid when two. Uh, Uniformed officers show up and don't realize that he's in the middle of a sting operation, which leads to one of the greatest chase scenes in the history of Hollywood. Okay? I'm not kidding. If you like full-scale destruction, but you actually like to see what it is you're watching, as opposed to full-scale destruction that you can't quite make out like in a Transformers movie, uh, this, this is amazing. The only thing missing from this is the music from the Blues Brothers or Benny Hill's Yakety Sax. It's hilarious. Um, on the other hand, the music in this movie is one of the, is it, there. There are two stars in this movie: Eddie Murphy and the music. Um, and I want to say it's the Neutron Dance. I'm even wrong about that, but I, I feel like it's the Neutron Dance that accompanies the chase, and it's hilarious. It's so funny. Um, it's such a fun opening scene. Basically, you have Axel Foley hanging by a chain on his <laughs> truck as they are trying to outrun the Detroit police force um, all over town, and he's being knocked this way and that, and this truck proceeds to smash into every car in Detroit. So, um, untold millions of damage done, uh, and he's told, you know, if you, this is where you get a lot of those memes about the angry sergeant constantly yelling at the out-of-control detective, you're on... <laughs> You're a loose cannon. I, I I don't know who did it before this. I don't care. I feel like everyone has been channeling Gil Hill ever since this movie came out. Um, Inspector T- uh, Douglas Todd, his name is in the movie. In any I, case, I, uh, I, 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 need, I really need to go back and watch um, some of the uh, some of the Harry Callahan movies because my. My gut hunch, and I acknowledge right up front, this could just be gas, um, tells me that it was probably one of those. That really probably, happened. probably. But uh, you know, this, this being one of the more modern ones that I that I think informed a lot of Hollywood writing for years to come. Um, in any case, the movie takes a different turn where Axel comes home, finds his childhood friend. Mike Tandino in his apartment. What you learn about these two is that Foley wasn't always a police officer, that he was a bit of a hood, and his friends were hoods and ne'er dwells. Um, yeah, yeah, he, um, he, he, he might have, he wasn't always a cop. He might have fractured a few laws in his youth. That he does say once, twice throughout this series. Um, a few times. Getting, getting to the point, uh, Mike Tandino, while he was trying to um, you know do a good turn after some time that he that he had spent up in uh, up in prison, decides to steal German bearer bonds from his previous boss's 
which in turn causes him to be executed outside of Foley's apartment while Foley has been knocked out cold. Uh, Foley uh, decides he wants to investigate his friend's murder, but his uh, boss, Inspector Todd, tells him no because he's too close to the case. This is where we get the name Beverly Hills Cop from. So what he learns about Mikey is that this all goes back to Mikey's time um, as an employee in Beverly Hills, California. So Foley decides since he can't, quote-unquote, work the case, he's going to take vacation and go out to Beverly Hills and sort of conduct his own investigation off the clock, uh, along the, which leads to another great sequence of events where he confronts the main bad guy, uh, Victor Maitland, and they proceed to toss him out of window, which, okay, I, I need to kind of stop the show here and uh, while I want to keep the, the, the tenor of the show sort of light and happy, especially after the last couple of shows that we've done where we had so many technical difficulties, I don't want to get into all that again. But, you know, we've, the last couple of shows, have, have we've had some trouble. So I wanted to keep this one just light and free, just me and Sean patting the ball back and forth. But I, I do have to take a moment here and address something. We now live in an age where there's a lot of tension between a militarized police force um, and the public, and you can take that a couple of different ways, whether it be racially or culturally or whatever. And it makes watching what happens in this movie, it really does bring a new, a, a new dimension to it. Because in, 1980, in, in 1984, when this movie comes out, you watch it, and you know, there's this, what I'm getting to is full, his actual Foley is unceremoniously thrown through a window, <laughs> lands in a pile of glass, and then the cops come and arrest him. And the whole time he's saying, why are you arresting me for being thrown out a window? And, like, and you have these, these ubermensch, these, these, these Aryan-looking cops. Um, and I'm laughing because it's, cause it's so... It, it, it's, it's funny, but it's, it's also like, yes, especially in 2016, you have these Aryan-looking cops who they don't abuse him as such. It's not like, you know, the Rodney King kind of a thing, but they're just like, yeah, you're under arrest for disturbing the peace. You know, it's like the joke I used to make about, uh, the, uh, you know, the only, someone getting arrested for resisting without violence, and that's the only charge they had. So essentially it's, it's a cop going to you and saying, you're under arrest. For what? For resisting. Hey, what? How'd that happen? Um, well, well, okay, okay. Now, now, now hang on. Let, let, let me interject something here. Because I'm not so this is the point. I'm, I just to be clear. Because, I'm not paying No, I get that, but you know, part of my opinion of this stems from the fact that I was the whole reason why I didn't see this movie until kind of I think I was in my late teens or early twenties, though, is in part because I was raised by a law enforcement veteran and one who absolutely, and to this day, I still absolutely hates, hates, go ahead and insert the Harlan Ellison speech from I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream to depict how much he hates pop culture depictions of law enforcement in almost any way, shape, or form. So that and... Just going to call a spade a spade. I don't care. Uh, slightest bit racist. 
at times. So you would have number one movie about police, which he hates in the first place. But then you throw in one starring a major black actor. Um, yeah, I think that explanation can end there uh, pretty uh, pretty succinctly. But here, but here's the thing: the thing about that though. You know what I liken everything you just said to in terms of trying to transpose that over to 2016? The Looney Tunes. Because, and by all means, allow me to throw a plug in here. If there are those of you out there who do not own any DVD sets from the Looney Tunes Golden Collection, highly encourage you. Go to Amazon, find them used. They're incredibly inexpensive, and they are a great compendium of arguably the greatest era of American animation. That being said, Warner Brothers felt, I don't know if I want to say, yeah, uh, probably a little bit obligated to preface their DVD sets with a disclaimer. Excuse me, burp there. Um, pointing out that a number of the shorts they included depicted uh, racial beliefs and stereotypes that are not held or accept or accepted today, but they're being presented as is because to do so is to pretend that those beliefs never happened. They had to do that because all of a sudden the twenty. The 2000s rolled around, and we all became goddamn offended by every fucking thing. As though everything were created with our specific little hot buttons in mind, that we are the bear that they all intended to provoke. Right down to things that were made a half century or more ago. Here's the thing. Anybody... If you're out there listening, who would watch this movie? Okay, feel around behind you. Reach down between your legs. Okay, feel the end of you'll feel the end of a cob that is firmly wedged, quite possibly, up your ass. Before watching almost anything made during the eighties, pull that some bitch out. Because at the time, this wasn't made with the idea being in mind of, oh, it's white cops roughing up a black guy. No, it's the bad guy didn't want anybody poking around in his business. He felt Eddie Murphy was being a dick, and so him got flung through a window. That's what it was. Okay, and if anybody who happens to be near you should happen to scream anything to the effect of hashtag Black Lives Matter while watching that scene, do the world a favor and just open hand slap them. Just slap the outrage out of them because not everything was meant to be offensive. Not everything is made out of ignorance to racial stereotypes. This wasn't black gut. Black guy gets roughed up by white guys. It was just Eddie Murphy gets rough, gets roughed up by two cops. That's all there was to it. 
absolutely no goddamn thing more. Please, folks, stop trying to transpose present-day outrage into things that were made two decades ago when nobody could have had any idea that the world was going to turn into such a bunch of pussies. (laughs) Um, Please, dial it down. I agree wholeheartedly with Sean. The point that I was um, trying to drive home was it's funny to watch it so many years later in light of everything that's happened. It it does, at least for me, it does sort of... I'm, I'll just be honest and, and let it let it provoke whatever it provokes. But I had a visceral reaction to watching it, which I would not have had we not had a had we not had in the last couple of years a series of very high profile issues of um, there being a struggle between the, the police and the black uh, community. And it doesn't just extend to the black community. There, you know, imp- impoverished people of all of all races um, have their run-ins with the, with the police, for better or for worse. And this is not the show to really get into that. This is not a politics show. But it, it just, I'm, I'm, it's funny what happens in film because something that is as, as innocent as that, you know, Sean's absolutely 110 percent right. The scene is to convey Victor Maitland's the bad guy and has lots of power, and he's abusing it to keep. Axel Foley from pursuing, uh, pursuing him and pursuing information about him in order to bring him down. That's all there's going on. This, this, this was in no way an essay on the relationship between the LAPD and black folks. However, you would have to be somewhat tone deaf to not acknowledge the fact that some years later, you're going to have in Los Angeles Rodney King and then the OJ trial. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, there's a show on FX that's talking all about it. Really good show, in my opinion. I've, I've enjoyed it so far. Um, so it's just, it's funny how that can happen, how you can watch a movie, and I said it before even with the Damon Wayne thing, and that has nothing to do with race or anything else. It just it was just I had no relationship to the actor once upon a time, and now I do, and this seems funny to me, you know, years later, when it wasn't, when, it, when I had no relationship to the actor. Um, that, so I've said it. Uh, think of it what you will, but it, it's, you know, maybe... You, other people have a different example of something where they saw uh, something once in a movie and had no relationship to it, and then real life intervenes years later, and the scene is either more or less meaningful to them. This is just one of those examples. It's the only reason why I was bringing it up. In any case, Foley goes through the window, proceeds to say on it over and over again, why am I being arrested for being tossed out a window? Um, Poor fella. Uh, and this is where the film takes yet another turn. We, we will we'll meet his compatriots, um, Taggart and Rosewood, whose name will be mangled throughout the rest of this film and the next one, from what I remember. Uh, Taggart and Rosewood uh, are questioning him. Um, this is where they also meet Lieutenant Bogomil. And between the three of them, they... Uh, at first, it's all antagonistic. You know, it's keep an eye on him, make sure he doesn't get involved in this, uh, involved with Victor Maitland again and involved in this murder investigation because they call Detroit and they find out what it's, what he's doing and they're there to make sure he doesn't do it. But through uh, force of character, <laughs> through force of charisma, uh, 
Eddie Murphy uh, over over time and over over the course of the movie gets the three of them in on his side and involved in wanting to uh, get to the heart of this thing as they slowly but surely realize more than meets the eye with Victor Maitland and he's really a bad dude. Um, there's another character uh, we talked a little bit. You talked a little bit about Bronson Pinchot, is very funny character. Um, uh, God, what's the character's name? No, um, joy. <laughs> Bronson Pinchot's character. Where is it? Bronson Pinchot. Ah, Serge. Yes. <laughs> Say it right, Sarge. Um, there's a there's another character who we meet. Uh, name is Jenny. Jenny is also from a, from uh, Axel Foley's past. Uh, she works for Victor Maitland. There's the connection. Um, the whole thing revolves around cocaine. Okay, so Victor Maitland's bringing cocaine in. Um, they uh, they go. They go. <laughs> yeah, it really did. Uh, <laughs> it was it was it was it was all but officially recognized. Um, just cutting to the chase, uh, the whole thing uh, comes to a head at Victor Maitland's mansion. We have a shootout. We have lots of fun stuff happening, and eventually, um, Maitland shoots and injures Foley. Uses Jenny as a shield. Bogeman arrives in the Tada nick of time. Distracts Maitland long enough for Jenny to break free, and Bogomil and Foley then shoot and kill Maitland to death. Um, to death. At the end, they all cover for one another when the chief arrives and is ready to start, you know, cutting heads off uh, about what's, what's all happened here. But they all stick up for one another and they all cover everything. And at the end of the day, uh, every, they they become friends. And Axel Foley goes back to Detroit. Um, so that's the movie, and I'm not doing it nearly enough justice because I kind of want to move things along and how and how I've described it. It's such a fun movie. Uh, Sean and I talked before the show started tonight about how a lot of it was improvised by Foley, and it's kind of Foley uh, by Eddie Murphy. And Eddie Murphy's just sort of doing his thing, and people are having to react to him. And you could tell, like, especially with uh, with the Taggart and Rosewood characters, how hard they must have tried and really rely on, on their acting chops to not crack up in every scene. Like, I can, like if there's ever a behind-the-scenes of Beverly Hills Cop, I can only imagine how many, how many takes things took because they're laughing hysterically at some of the stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, historically, in, in any interview where people have talked about the movie, they've, they've said, oh, yeah, we all had to work our asses off to, um, to not just bust our guts from one take to the next. Um, and, and I think that that goes to really the heart of the movie, which is this movie is fun. It's not, you know, this this is this is no way an essay on, on the culture. It's a fun story about um, a detective uh, seeking vengeance for his friend and making sure justice is served. That's it. That's the movie. Um, and along the way, you have a very comedic and fun performance by Eddie Murphy. Um, who's sort of like a reverse fish out of water in that, uh, well, you know, he, well, yes, he is a stranger in a strange land. It's everybody else around him that's uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, he has this sort of circle of comfortability that just follows him wherever he goes, and it makes everybody else 
who, you know, even though this is their turf, Beverly Hills, it, 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 he's screwing up everybody else's safe world. Um, which is another really fun thing about the movie. Uh, you have, you know, you, you have a scene early on where uh, they go to a strip club and it's, oh, we can't drink and we have to be, uh, you know, we have to behave ourselves. And then at the end, it's like, fuck it, let's go out and have a, have a drink at a strip club. So, fun things like that. Uh, um, talk about a little bit about other performances other than that they were professional enough not to continue laughing constantly. Um, what did you think of uh, the Rosewood, Taggart, and Bogomil characters? I thought, um, you know, I thought for what they were supposed to be, they were really spot on. I don't have a whole lot of criticism about it other than I think maybe the Rosewood character could have stood to be a little stronger. Um, you know, every Taggart must says to Rosewood, you know, Billy, we need to talk like a hundred times throughout the movie. And it's like, but by, by like the third time, you're like, all right, we get it. He's a little crazy. And this plot, and I bring it up because it gets worse in the second movie, but just real quick, your thoughts on the cast besides good old Serge. You know what? You know if, what? If, if you're going to have things, um, how can I put this? Um, first off, uh, Tagger was was that uh, was that Dennis Franz or? Uh, Taggart is played by John Ashton. John Ashton. Okay, he, he looks a lot like a young. He looks a lot like a young Dennis Franz. Um, well, you know what? I mean, Ashton and and Judge Reinhold, uh, uh, Taggart and uh, Rosewood, or Roseweed, as he's every so often called in Beverly Hills Cop Two. I mean, they work really well because they're played to exactly what they're supposed to be and nothing more. John Ashton is kind is kind of the 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 grumbly curmudgeonly straight man of the two and Rosewood is sort of this um this cop equivalent to Jimmy Olsen. That that's kind of tagging along and just, is just wild-eyed and blown away by Foley. Um, a little bit of hero worship going on there, and I think if anything sums up that they were done just right, as opposed to having them try to be bigger, is the fact that in Beverly Hills Cop Three, you've got Rosewood, who's all of a sudden got this uh, somewhat important desk job, and if you ever want proof of why. Reinhold worked so well in that character specifically, just the way he played it. It's the fact that if you listen to his explanation of what his alphabet soup title actually means, <laughs> it plays like bad video game exposition cutscene dialogue. I was watching the goddamn movie on a on an Amazon Fire Stick. And I kept reaching for my PlayStation controller and hammering on X, wondering, why can't I skip? It's not working. <laughs> it's supposed to go to the next scene. Why can't I skip? Um, but, you know, he, he's so serious. That he's in a position he doesn't really belong in. Um, which, and don't get me wrong, there were a lot of reasons why Beverly Hills Cop 3 was... Maybe well-intended, but it, the magic was just gone. And that was a big one. It was because, in addition to Eddie kind of being a little bit too 
old to really engage to really engage in the in the typical Axel Foley type shenanigans. Um, Reinhold was a grown ass man too by that point. Well, not that he wasn't in Beverly Hills Cop or Beverly Hills Cop too, but um, and he was older and just not remotely as entertaining. Um, I mean. Because sometimes you really gotta strike while the iron is hot because some characters do have a shelf life where you do just have to admit that an actor is just too old. I mean, you know, we they, they can't all be like Hugh Jackman who can spend fifteen, sixteen years playing the same character and never really look his age to the point that the character becomes unconvincing. Or um uh, you know, same deal with Patrick Stewart, who just doesn't fucking age. You could put him in that red and black Starfleet uniform, and boom, he is Captain Picard. Um, you know, this movie was was very much a lightning in a bottle thing, where it worked because of when they captured Eddie in his creativity, and the whole reason why you couldn't do it today is the whole reason why Eddie Murphy was justifiably uh, more than a little bit cheesed off at Norm MacDonald when he wanted him to go out on his uh, Saturday Night Live anniversary performance and uh, go kind of be the old Eddie Murphy and make a bunch of vulgar jokes about Bill Cosby. Because that's not who Eddie is anymore. Um... Uh, that uh, that was an energy captured at a very specific time time in his life, and with some guys, when it's gone, it's gone, man, solid gone. Um, <laughs> I don't. I would I would just kind of feel a little bit sorry for him if we're being perfectly honest. Um, to watch him go out there and nowadays see him trying to sort of still be Axel Foley. Um, because that that character is fun because it, 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 it's kind of a young, it's kind of a younger, wild and crazy guy um, who plays well off a bunch, off a bunch of other straight men that are well placed around him. And one kind of slightly offbeat sidekick who sort of hero worships him. Uh, so... Uh, sorry, everybody. Just we're not getting the old Eddie back. If if you want to watch that, then by all means, most of his movies are still available on Netflix. God knows at the rate the good stuff is going off that service, get your ass over there and watch it now. Um, <laughs> because no, he he ain't going from he ain't going from daddy daycare back to the re- back to the red Eddie Murphy raw leather jumpsuit. Which, by the way, I love the fact that there's a joke in the first movie that actually just blatantly pokes fun at that. I remember as a kid, uh, the joke he's talking about, if you haven't seen it or if you don't remember, um, two people walk past him in semi-matching, um, in semi-matching like leather suits, and it's the one that he's wearing. Uh, I, it's, it's, I think it's similar to something like Michael Jackson wore. Um, and then I, then I think he wears something very similar in Raw. 
But uh, he stops and he looks at these two people in Beverly Hills that are dressed alike and just just starts cracking up. Well, and, and and the funny thing, and here's the thing about Eddie Murphy, is you love it when Eddie cracks up because his laugh is like Mike Tyson's speaking voice. <laughs> it's this, it's this ridiculous sounding nerdy chuckle of. Uh, 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 uh. That just it comes out so naturally. It's not forced or anything. It's just like that's just his that's just the way Eddie fucking naturally laughs. Um <laughs> so not just when he makes a joke, but when Eddie laughs at something, you can't but giggle. It's it's like if you have somebody who you're watching the room with and they happen to point out that weird little thing in Juliet Danielle's neck, that weird thing like a mis like a displaced Adam's apple that bulges out of her throat every time she talks. Once you notice it, you can't unnotice it and you wouldn't want to. Because it would just kind of ruin everything you were watching. But anyway, um, I, I'm a little bit ranty tonight. Like much like Eddie, I'm a bit caffeinated. So, so um, I think to sort of tie this all up, so we can move on to uh, to the other two movies. Um, like I said, like I said at the top, I think it's it's pretty perfect. Um, I wanted to say this. I wanted to make sure I got it said in this podcast tonight. If you're an aspiring screenwriter and you're trying to figure out, you know, how to lay things out and how to tell a story where things are set up and paid off and make sense and you know, everything sort of flows like, like, a, like a book. You, I know most people, like when I was in screenwriting class, we watched uh, Chinatown and we watched uh, oh, Nashville. Oh, and, of course, you know, you have uh, Ro- um, Rosebud. What the hell is the name of the movie? Um, help me out here. Rosebud. Uh, Rosewood. No, no. Rosebud, Sled, um, Black and White. Oh, um, Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane. Thank you. Names escape me tonight. Names escape me at every show. <laughs> I don't take notes, people. Uh, I didn't do it in high school, and I'm not doing it now. Uh, yeah, Citizen Kane. You know, you, you, these are the movies that I watched when I went to, when I took a screenwriting class in college. Um, and you know, as far as how do you lay out a screenplay? You know, what's a good example of a movie where, you know, things are pretty, where the beats are pretty much perfect. I would tell you, uh, throw this movie in that pile. Everything is laid out perfectly. You have, and I'll break it down for you so that you understand what I'm talking about. You know everything you need to know about uh, Axel Foley in the first 10 minutes of this movie. You know that he... Um, you know that he cares deeply for his friends, that he cares deeply about his job, but he doesn't pay attention to rules. There's a line in here about his reckless disregard for, uh, I want I, 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 it's this one, where he's just like, I think you're, you're missing the point. <laughs> so Inspector Todd says to him, um, do you know how much you've cost this city? He's like, I don't think that should be the focus of why you're angry. He was like, okay, well, what should be the focus? He's like, I think what should be the focus is my blatant disregard for for uh, for police policy and procedure. And he was like, <laughs> <laughs> so you 
so that whole layout, you know, his interactions with Paul Reiser's character, who, you know, who uh, is very much the um, boo-boo to his yogi. Oh, oh, Axel, I don't think Inspector Todd's going to like that. That's literally his entire character. Um, so, so in the first ten pages, you know everything you need to know about this character going through the rest of the movie, and it's more than just a series of cliches. There's a real character here, with you know, with, with thoughts and wishes and aspirations, and you get it all right at the beginning, and it's more shown, not told. And you get an awesome police car chase. You get, you get an awesome car chase. Um, you then the movie takes takes a moment to. Uh, there's a, I mean, I, I want to say I got clocked it at about 20 minutes before he gets to Beverly Hills, and I kept thinking to myself, like, see, this is what I mean when I say get to the mall already. You know, we got to get the kids to the mall. That's a mall. I'm referencing mall rats, but it's my way of, I like that phrase, it's my way of saying whatever your movie is about, you need to get it started within about 10 to 20 minutes of the movie, um, or, or you're going to lose your audience. So if you're wondering... Uh, if you wonder what kind of an example I would cite for a movie that does, does that in a very terrible way and takes forever to get to the, to get to the mall, go watch Tomorrowland. And, by comparison, I don't know if you've seen it, Sean, but yeah. <laughs> we're about an hour and a half into the movie before we get to Tomorrowland. It's terrible. Um, in any case. So they set up fully in the first like 10 minutes of the movie, and then the next 10 minutes is set up is setting up the plot, and then they're off to the mall. They're off to Beverly Hills. 20 minutes is about all it takes, and that's all you need. And then uh, over the next 10 to 15 minutes, you're establishing more characters, you're moving the, and you're also moving the plot along. So my, my, point, to the, my, my point about all this is if you, uh, if you study the beats and the plot points of Beverly Hills Cop, and sort of use that as a framework for whatever it is you're working on. I think I think you'll do well. I think whatever it is you've come up with will uh, will we'll be starting off on the right foot. Now, does every movie have to follow this process? Does every movie have to follow uh, and, you know, and lean on the girders that that this one does? No, but I think if you're first, I think if you're starting out and you're, you're trying to conceptualize a movie in your head, um, this is a great one to start to, to watch and get some ideas from and as far as how to lay out your movie. Um, I love it. Beverly Hills Cop is probably one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, you know, it's definitely in my, my top ten, and it's, and it's pretty perfect. I, I can't – it's why we didn't spend a lot of time tonight dissecting it like I've done other movies, because there's really nothing wrong with it. Um, unfortunately, as Robert Winfrey is famous for saying – when the profitability pig reared its ugly head, you know there's going to be sequels. And and here's the Beverly Hills Cop series is a great example of everything wrong with franchises. And that is, here's the gimmick that worked in one movie. Let's do the same exact gimmick again in the next movie because we already know that it works. That is the story of the Beverly Hills Cop sequels is – you know, it, the gimmick was Foley's friend dies. Well, Foley has an operation that goes south. Foley's friend dies. Foley goes to Beverly Hills to investigate. Hilarity ensues. They literally have the same plot for all three movies. And they just keep killing. They just keep changing the person who gets shot in the beginning. 
Um, and but the third go around with the same nonsense thing, uh, as Sean put it before, the magic is gone. A lot of the oomph, a lot of the character, a lot of the a lot of the fun things that made the first movie so great are absolutely missing from this sham of the sequel. But we're not there yet. We're on the second one, and the second one, essentially, like I said, it's kind of a remix of the first movie. Where, that, that follows the same basic uh, plot structure, um, close enough that it's still enjoyable, but different enough where you're going, was this trip really necessary? And at the end of the day, as I like to tell people, when you have a $15 million budget budgeted movie and it makes $316 million in 1984, yes, that trip is necessary whether you like it or not. So... <laughs> Uh, so let's go ahead and talk about Beverly Hills Cop 2. Um, in this one, we have uh, the setup here. Let me get to it. The um, setup here is that uh, we have, uh, yeah, he's back in Detroit, and it's yet another um, another sting operation. Another 48 hours. Okay. Uh, that's the plot finally. I can I, I can stop hemming and hawing through this. Um so on the one side we have going on here in Detroit with with uh Axel Foley trying to um I think the first one was cigarettes, the second one he's he's buying credit cards, that's the deal. Um, he said, the second one, he's driving around in a Lamborghini, I think it is, and complete with him continuing to repeatedly say, I'm a businessman. Um, yeah, yeah. If you thought the businessman thing was funny in the first one, wait till you hear it a thousand times in the second one, which is the story of this entire movie. If you like the first one, wait till, wait till the second one does the same gags a hundred times. Um... So he's trying to buy credit cards. He's doing business because he's a businessman. Meanwhile, back in Beverly Hills, Bogomil is out for a jog, and uh, there's a series of crimes um, going on called the Alphabet Crimes. These are robberies of high-end stores and such. Um, he's out for a run. He notices um, red uh, red soil. He becomes suspicious. Uh, fast forward, Bridget Nielsen, he gets shot. <laughs> okay. um, Bridget Nielsen's her own plot point, okay? Just, just so you understand that. And now, at this point, what's been established is that Bogomil, um, Taggart, and Rosewood, and Foley are all good buddies now. They've been on fishing trips. Uh, Foley is uh, friendly with, the, with Bogomil's daughter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so now that uh, Bogomil's been shot, rinse, repeat, Foley leaves his job in Detroit to go and investigate against the wishes of God and everyone else on this planet. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't want to get into a lot of the, a lot of the finer points of this. But um, it's the same sort of thing where uh, we have a, sort of another soft-spoken uh, rich villain who, you know, who everyone thinks is a pillar of, of the town turns out to be a terrible human being. Um, 
Bridget Nielsen, again, there's <laughs> a plot point. She's there. She's being all Bridget Nielsen-y. And uh, along, you know, along the well, way, and, it's and a lot. Well, and, and again, since we have possibly some younger viewers who may not remember this, the 80s was kind of a... The 80s and the 70s, for that matter, were sometimes a weird time in terms of kind of defining sex appeal. Um, like... Uh, you, you have you have something where it's kind of very obvious what exactly their allure is. Um, Allison Bree is extremely cutesy and funny in a girl next door kind of way, and she also happens to be not only adorable but also gorgeous. Um, you have Sofia Vergara, who is also surface of the sun hot, but also has a really great and charming kind of even self-effacing a sense of humor about herself. Um, then, back then, you kind of had a couple people, like uh, alongside Brigitte Nielsen, Grace Jones kind of came to mind among those people that were, for some weird damn reason, kind of regarded as super sex symbols when really about the fullest extent of their appeal was being tall and slightly butch. In fact, Amazonian. Scratch, just, 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 yeah, just scratch the slightly almost entirely. That's basically about the only reason she's in, she's in the movie. Uh, she's tall, stacked, blonde, kind of butch, and she is, um, well, calling her Ivan Drago with lady bits would be being generous <laughs> to her acting ability. Um, there really just is not that much there. Um, she's just kind of, well, for my MMA fans out there, she's kind of like Tim Sylvia. Her main appeal is tall. That's, that's about it. And to this day, the appeal of her is kind of lost on even me, even if you kind of factor in that whole weird period a few years ago where um, she was, where she had that whole weird romance with Flavor Flav. <laughs> yeah, that was an odd couple. Yeah, I was going to say, do not tell me I'm the only one who remembers that. I know I'm not. I'm sorry, I got momentarily distracted. I apologize. All right, um, I want to talk... This this one's about their their masking and arms deal. Like the last one, they were masking a cocaine deal. This one, they're masking an arms deal. Uh, it all comes down to uh, a battle in the oil fields. People get shot. Hilarity ensues. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I and at the end, it sort of ends the same way the last one does. But I but I have to talk about a certain character now because the one thing that's different about this movie from the last one, and again. What is it there to say about Beverly Hills Cop 2 of it? it? Again, if you like the last one, here's more of the same done a hundred times, which is a major problem I have with a lot of sequels. I think you can, I, I think when you do a sequel, you should focus on characters and what do you have these characters doing now and not be a slave to the plot of the previous movie, you know, and say like, okay, well, this worked in the last one, so just do, keep doing that. Do different stuff. Put them in different situations. This again is just a lot of more of the same. But they added one thing to it that was different. 
They added a character uh, played by Alan Garfield, who is Chief Harold Lutz. And it's it, it, the nice thing about Gilbert uh, Hill as, as Todd was it, you could you at least get the sense he cares somewhat about about Foley. Yes, he's yelling at him, but he also caused you know uh, third world destruction in Detroit, you know, in the first movie, and then in the second one he's doing more of the same nonsense and not coming up with the goods. You know, he's not coming up with the, the, uh, with the criminal arrest like he should. So there, there's frustration there. Um, but you, but you get the sense that at least the man cares about Axel Foley to a degree to put, put up with him for this long. And so you kind of forgive him for being, you know, for, for constantly yelling and screaming at the Axel Foley character. The opposite of that is this Chief Harold Lutz character, who is one note the entire movie, and it's and the one note is, is apparently a loud blowing through some sort of uh, tuba. It's just this god awful yelling and screaming at everybody and not listening, and he only has one line in the movie: it's "Shut up, <laughs> shut up, <coughs> shut up, and you're fired." Um, it's like an even less creative, even less creative fucking Vince McMahon or uh, Donald Trump, our future president. Uh, he's every scene he's in, he doesn't listen to reason, and he's firing everybody, and he, you know, or he's um, demoting people, and he's not listening to any kind of reason to the point where it's not believable he would even have that position anymore. And then at the end, you know, he gets fired, and it's supposed to be the sort of you know encourage the audience to cheer moment where you're just like, thank you, get finally get this asshole off my screen. Um, we like to, we like to uh, talk a lot of, a lot of wrestling on this show. Both of us are wrestling fans. Um, you know, it was sort of the great unifier that brought a lot of us who podcast on this network and casual heroes together. So now is as good a time as any as a wrestling reference. Uh, Chief Harold Lutz's character gets X-Pac heat. Okay. What is X-Pac heat? It's it's not that you're you're booing them because they're a bad guy and they do bad things. It's you literally hate this person and don't want and are not entertained by them, and you just want them off television. You don't want them defeated. You literally want them to go away and never be in front of a camera again. And that's this character. He is nails on a chalkboard. Um, it's the kind of lazy writing that defines current Hollywood comedies today. But at least back then, it was, you know, here and there, you, there look, not every comedy was gold. So, you know, did you have evidence, uh, episodes of lazy writing in, in Hollywood? Sure. Um, he's probably one of the, he, as far as the character creation, this is one of the worst offenses. He's so terrible. <laughs> it makes the movie at times almost unwatchable because you, you find yourself asking, you know, as much as this is fictional and silly, you're at least along enough for the ride. It's like watching a James Bond movie. You can suspend your disbelief long enough to be taken along for the ride and enjoy it, and he knocks you right out of the movie. Now, did you get that sense too, Sean, or are you like, Jesus, Rattledge, you, you know, <laughs> where are you coming from with this? You didn't bother me that much. I was curious to get your take on good old Chief Harold Lutz. Oh, you pretty much nailed it. He's... He's there to yell a lot, and he doesn't even have um, that kind of uh, proto-Sergeant James Dokes appeal of 
of of Inspector Todd. Um, he's just kind of there to be uh, to be just obnoxious and not even like charmingly or entertainingly obnoxious. Uh, you you summed it up as X Pac. Yeah, you know what? If movies were professional wrestling, that would be a pretty brilliant summation of it. Um, and I I hate characters like that. I hate it when that's all you can do. When that's when that's when that's your big idea is is basically the equivalent to you know the, the kind of acting where you could replace the performer with. A doll with a pull string, who a just doll. utters, yeah, yeah, who just utters one of two or three phrases because you know that the way you've written it, whichever of those phrases he happens to bellow out, it's not going to sound out of place. Um, <laughs> it's just it's it's it, it, it's, tra- it's tragically out of place in a movie that's full of other characters who, even when they're authoritative, they're kind of sort of likable. Um, yeah, as much so, as um, the last one, Ro- Ro- Billy Rosewood is sort of a fop, um, you know, and it's oh Billy, we got to talk, and he's you know he's the weirdo of the police force. Um, even in this one, where you get to know him a little bit more, and you know he does the bit with the plants, and um, and he has a million guns on him, and then at the end he's wearing a duster, and he has you know and he's playing with a rocket launcher. That stuff was fun. It wasn't overdone. Don't try and hold under. Judge Reinhold underplays the role, which works. Because, you know, you don't want him to be all Jack Black about it, you know, and yelling and into the camera constantly. Uh, you you want that character to be... Which, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned Jack Black because I just have this nagging feeling. And folks, by all means, scoff and roll your eyes and, you know give the bird to your tablet or iPhone or whatever the hell you're listening on all you want to. But deep down, you're going to know I'm right with what I'm about to say. The day is going to come when they're going to remake Beverly Hills Cop. It's going to happen. We didn't grow up thinking they would ever try to remake or reboot or relaunch or or re-re or whatever Ghostbusters. Here we are, coming this summer. Um, one more attempt to make me think that Melissa McCarthy is funny. Bad news, guys. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Um, but yeah, I, I could totally see when they re- not. And again, I'm even going to say if when they remake this. Yeah, um, my money is on, I think they'll go for Kevin Hart to play Axel Foley, or I, or I don't know, some son, cousin, long-lost brother, uh, slightly genetically altered clone, Earth 2 alternate, ver- alternate version, the hell ever, um, Axel Foley. And, yeah, when they go to kind of recast the Judge Reinhold role, It'll be it'll be someone like um, Jack Black, or they might once more try to shove Andy Samberg down the world's throat, or God help me, I will bite a cyanide capsule if this happens. They might decide Jonah Hill. I was um, thinking the weed like, from uh, 
that that, that who the, I, we need. Go ahead, sorry. Who, by the way, Jonah Hill, for the record, is about as funny as a steel toe boot kick to the testicles. Um, because he, he's from that he's from that school of never shut the fuck up comedy. Um, that's kind of all he knows how to do. Um, Here's my vote, Michael Sarah. So cast Michael Sarah in the Judge Reinhold role. You know, I've softened on Michael Sarah over the re- over the years, and I could actually see that maybe being moderately doable. I could I could kind of see that working. Although the really terrifying option is they might decide to try to cast Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> um, I think he'd be a little old for that role. Because because God knows if if the Rock if the Rock is is a franchise Viagra, yeah, Shia LaBeouf is franchise. Think about your naked great great Nana. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it's and that's the whole thing, kind of about both the casting and the characters of all of these movies. Is and again, it's another lightning in a bottle thing where the first movie got it absolutely perfect in terms of everybody playing well off of each other. Because here's the challenge of when you're in a movie alongside that time's Eddie Murphy, is if you are a bad guy in that movie and you fail at really standing out, it's a lot like the same reason why you can never have Dwayne Johnson play um, Green Lantern John Stewart because you will put John Stewart in a scene with Superman or Batman and without even really trying or even despite maybe trying not to the natural energy the charisma the presence will just make you forget there is anybody else on the screen when in reality this character is one who should be secondary to the other two. And, you know, in these movies, if you're going to act alongside Eddie, you have to bring your A-game because otherwise you're just nothing but unremarkable and forgettable. And and that was kind of the problem I thought with um, Brigitte Nielsen is she didn't really bring anything interesting to being a villain other than she's tall. That's it. She was there for that one-off joke about how California is apparently supposedly this land of six-foot-plus giantesses roaming roaming everywhere. Um Otherwise, she she just kind of gets blown away and never even she never comes across as a threat. is is kind of is kind of the problem. Um, and but on the other hand, when it comes to Judge Reinhold, he kind of plays off Eddie Murphy in just such a way because he's not trying to match his energy because he knows that's not his role. He knows that that's not what he's there, that's not what he's there to do. That's not what he was si- what he was signed on for. I fear that somebody like Jack Black or like I said, <laughs> Jonah Hill 
they would go and try to do that. They they would they would go and try to just like shout him down, somebody else down, so to speak. And it just doesn't work. It just it just makes you look like an asshole. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's that's, that's kind of my thought. Okay. Um. We are winding down to the last uh, half an hour of our show here, so let's talk about Beverly Hills Cop Three. <laughs> well, what are we going to do with the other twenty minutes, Mark? <laughs> Plugs. Uh, no. All right. So Beverly Hills Cop Three. Now, after two movies, everything is always the same. Someone has to be shot and/or murdered uh, in, in Axel Foley's life in order for him to go to Beverly Hills and solve a crime. That's it. That's the movie. <laughs> okay? <laughs> and by the third one, I know this went through a lot of rewrites and they were a whole bunch of different ideas and they couldn't get certain people back because they thought, it, they, you know, whatever version of the script they read, was, they thought it was trash. Um, so somehow they landed on, hey, let's do Beverly Hills Cop in a theme park. Now, this is, when this comes out, it is 1994. And... Around this time, there was something going on in Hollywood called Die Hard in a dot, dot, dot. Okay? And Beverly Hills Cop 3 is referred to as Die Hard in the theme park. Now, let that, let that simmer for a moment as you wonder, what, how do you, wait, why? Now, I said a couple of months back when we, uh, in October, as a matter of fact, when we did Jaws, I absolutely loved Jaws 3D. I thought it was great. Um, I thought the concept of a shark invading invading SeaWorld is both hilarious and entertaining and horrifying all at the same time. And I have also said on this show that I, that I have been waiting for the Jurassic Park movie where the dinosaurs go crazy in an active working theme park. It was actually one of my criticisms of Jurassic World was, finally, it's the movie I wanted with none of the stuff I wanted in it. Um, and by that, I mean they don't. there's not enough of the dinosaurs wreaking havoc on the people in the park. We got one scene. One scene of pterodactyls swooping and diving and grabbing people and dropping them and eating them and all that. And that was it. I, you know, and then we got the dinosaur triple threat, and I didn't remember anything else in the movie. But, <laughs> but I love the idea of massive gatherings of people in an enclosed area, like a theme park or a zoo or whatever, and something, a monster escapes, and you know, now you have these people dealing with that thing. Um, I think there's an opportunity for a lot of fun to be had on the screen. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be gory, but, you, you, you know, there's, there's, there's an opportunity for a fun kind of cinematic violence that, uh, that you can enjoy if you enjoy those kinds of movies. I don't know what they were thinking with this, because Beverly Hills Cop is a mystery. Now, it's a funny mystery, and there's certainly a lot of action sequences, but if you were to boil it down and, and, and um, to its least uh, least common denominator, uh, it's a mystery. You have a detective trying to solve a murder, or you know trying to solve a shooting, and 
they took that and they said, okay, let's have a mystery, but let's have the clues all be in this theme park and let's put the villain there. And let's make that our main sort of set piece for where the action takes place. And first of all, I don't understand how you can then call this movie Beverly Hills Cop other than the characters are in it. Because the movie takes place in, quote-unquote, Wonderworld, and I don't know if you've been to California, but there's no fucking theme parks in fucking Beverly Hills. First of all, Beverly Hills is like two blocks long. <laughs> Rodeo Drive, and that's it. No, um, there's no theme parks in Beverly Hills. There's no room for it. Uh, the theme parks are all in Anaheim, um, you know, more southern California, more southern than Los Angeles. Uh, they're, but they're not in Beverly Hills. But that's where the whole movie takes place. And it's like, okay, first we have to invent a reason for Eddie, for Eddie Murphy to come to California in the first place. Then we have to keep giving him reasons to stay in the theme park because that's the major set piece of this movie. And it comes across as forced, ham-fisted, and I'm going to just go ahead and call it retarded. This thing was directed by John Landis and... When I saw that, I didn't know at the time, um, but when I, when I read that, I was like, that just makes me hate your son even more. <laughs> You're a terrible director, and, you, and your son's a terrible writer. Um, I really have a problem with uh, Max Landis, but that's a whole other podcast. In any case, this time around, they kill Inspector Todd. And the killers that... Uh, the, the people that kill Inspector Todd are from California... Hence, <laughs> Eddie Murphy got to go all the way to California again to solve yet another murder. And this is what I mean by, you know, you're 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 hanging too closely. Uh, you're hanging too closely to the plot structure of your first movie, and you can't keep doing that movie after movie after movie. Uh, quick. Quick correction. According to Wikipedia, the park does, the park is located in Beverly Hills, California. Sure. And the moon is made of green. Oh, shit. That's what I mean. Like, if, you've ever, if you've ever physically been there, you know there ain't no room for no bee park. What is a family-friendly franchise or corporate theme park in Beverly Hills? <laughs> when oh, they don't shit. like children. <laughs> That's like putting a theme park in Beverly Hills is like putting a playground in a strip club. <laughs> it's some 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 things just do not go together, like erotic macrame. <laughs> So I'm not going to get into the nonsense plot of this thing. Suffice to, suffice to say, this this all revolves. This one, you know, first is cocaine, then we're doing guns. This one is counterfeit money, um, and the the park is is the cover for the security people to um, use stolen uh, stolen paper uh, for money to counterfeit to make uh, counterfeit money. And you know, get away with uh, all kinds of terribleness. Um, and it just happened to be that the that the night that they were doing this sting operation in a chop shop happened to be the night 
that these people were in town doing whatever it was they were doing, and the two trains smashed together and uh, resulted in in Inspector Todd being shot and killed. Um, John Ashton is not in this movie, so we are left with Eddie Murphy, Judge Reinhold, again, as Billy Rosewood, and then we introduce Hector Alonzo as Detective John Flint, who, uh, you want to talk about paycheck performances. Uh, I was reading about this, where, you know, Eddie Murphy sort of had low energy on the set and was kind of depressed being there, and it kind of comes out in the movie because he does, he seems like he does, the, the Eddie Murphy that was spun and had a twinkle in his eye in the first movie is all but gone in this one. And it's, and it's like just phoning it in. But it's not like he was alone. You know, Judge Reinhold tries. He does his best. But uh, Hector Alonso, gee, I, like, I don't even know if he memorized his lines because I'm pretty sure like, he would like, read his lines off camera, walk in the front of the camera, deliver them, and walk off again. Otherwise, I don't have an explanation for his performance. It's freaking <sighs> terrible. Would be would be like he tried and he just can't act. This isn't terrible. This is uh, I would say non-energetic. It's. Alec Guinness once talked about he didn't understand the Obi-Wan Kenobi character in Star Wars, he did, and because George Lucas isn't, isn't a real director, um, he didn't really direct the actors, and he wasn't really able to convey what it was he wanted out of him. So Alec Guinness just chose to read the lines uh, as, as they were and didn't really put a whole lot of inflection into them. And that's what I feel like everyone was channeling in this movie. Everyone channeling Alec Guinness just reading lines and not trying to act. And there you have, in a nutshell, the performances of Beverly Hills Cop 3. Because after, because even poor Gil Hill tries his best to capture, you know, the, perform, the, the, the little bit of screen time he gets in the previous two movies. And this one, he just seems tired. Everyone seems tired. It's just like, like, they were put, like they were put on this set at gunpoint. Like, okay, one actor will shoot you. Like, oh, uh, Axel Foley, do you need the SWAT team? Because uh, blah, blah, yakety smackety. Um, and that's my summation of Beverly Hills Cop 3 in a nutshell. Uh, you, have a, you have a silly mystery in an environment that doesn't really support the mystery led by characters who just showed up for a paycheck. Um. <laughs> Uh, well, 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 uh, the, uh, the, the main two security henchmen that kind of get the bulk of the security henchmen line throughout the movie, um, they, they have these perpetually goofy facial expressions that look like they, they kind of both look like they eat farted and don't think the other one knows the other them. Um, I want to. I want to one day see a scene where. Have, have you ever seen the room, Mark? Not not the Oscar-nominated movie of this year, but the 2003 greatest bad movie of all time. Have you ever seen it? Have you ever? Have I seen the room? No, I feel like I'm the only person who does a, who does a podcast or an internet show that hasn't seen the room. 
Okay, you get okay. 15 nerd points deducted from Gryffindor for that fact. <laughs> Um, uh, but there, there's but there, there's a character in that movie named Mike who's played by an actor named Scott Holmes, and I swear Scott Holmes needs to be in every movie from now until the end of the, of the creation because he just has the most hilarious facial expression at one point where he where he apparently got it in his head that the appropriate facial response to getting what appears to be a blowjob is. Make a gooky face. <laughs> like, like wide eyes, cheeks popped out, just the goofiest fucking face ever. I want to see him in a staring contest with these two henchmen. <laughs> because, just, folks, there is not much in this movie to love. There really isn't. And like, like you said, Eddie Murphy just looked like Shang Tsung himself at had stolen the man's soul. Um, but, and throughout it, and allow me to touch on this as another example of missing the point. We really haven't talked much. Hang on, i got to sneeze. How dare you, sir? How dare you? We are a professional show here. My goodness. Says the guy who admittedly rarely podcasts while wearing pants. Moving on. As uh, to be fair, as pointed out, the guy who, and no, I'm not telling you all which shows, has several times talked about movies on this show while playing some combination of Batman, Arkham Origins, Fallout 3, and Injustice. That's the thing, you're picking on me wearing pants and not not talking about the times I've fallen asleep on this show and Metal Hammer of Doom. Far greater offense. (laughs) Anyway, um, no, one of the things that kind of goes un- that we haven't really touched on enough about the first two movies is the soundtrack. It yeah, I, has, I collected that before. Let's yeah. say a thousand times. It just, they're as weird as this is going to sound. And if you didn't grow up with 80s music, I'm sorry, you just don't get it. But there is no Beverly Hills Cop without the Pointer Sisters. Period. End of fucking story. There just isn't. Um, and without a combination of the Pointer Sisters and this just gloriously bouncy, like, infectious synth score that really sticks in your head the entire time. And in the third movie, they did this really uncomfortable thing. It's like something you would do if you were... If, like, community decided to parody Beverly Hills Cop. Or they did a Beverly Hills Cop parody on Chuck, where they take the iconic theme and they do, like, a, a supposedly really tense orchestral version of, version of it. It's, if, you've never, if you've never heard it, first off, shame on all of you, you, you heathen Philistine bastards. Um but second, it's called Axel F. But once you hear it, you will know you've heard it a million fucking times. But they do this thing where first they try to do this this really cliched, tense, like John Williams-style action score version of it, and it just sounds not even dorky, but just cheesy and corny. Um, there's another one where they try to do, like... And, and 
in uh, like 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 a calliope style amusement park. It's a small world version of it, and it's not. And I can't even say it's funny. It's just an awkward forced attempt at a joke. It's like it's like somebody tells a joke and you just sit there stone faced, and then the the Carlos Mencia esque hack feels the need to explain it. And you just cut them off and say, no, 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 I understood it. It just wasn't funny. What, the Wonder that's World that's song, you're talking, about, you're talking about the Wonder World song that's like the backdrop of the theme park, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Imagine someone tells a joke. You don't laugh, right? So they tell you the joke again. And they go, eh? And you're like, no, I get it. It's just not funny. Let me say it again. And they keep doing this, and they won't let you leave. And at some point, while they, and at some point while they're telling you this joke, there's another person that's saying it puts the lotions on its skin. Okay, that's what this felt like. It was just over and over and over again, and slowly you realize you're being tortured. It's and again, it's music matters in a movie. It it does. It's something that nowadays is a lost art in that kind of, well, as much as I've admitted before, I actually kind of like the franchise, in that kind of fast and furious sense of we're not making a soundtrack because we think it suits the movie. Just here's here's a bunch of songs, a bunch of already recorded, already released songs that we were able to license, and a couple of originals that happen to name drop our stupid movie, and we're going to put it on a CD and try to sell it to people for fifteen to twenty bucks a pop. That's it. Yeah, it's, a lot of a lot of soundtracks now are essentially, you know, now <laughs> this is music, the metal version, or this is music, the rap version. It's a bunch right, of singles right. that studios are trying to uh, record, record companies are trying to promote and they market them as part of the movie, as opposed to, say, something like uh, Trent Reznor scoring, I think it's Dark Highway. Um, well, okay, oh, well, or, well, or if you're going to go with existing songs, I'll even go you one better than that. Um, the Crow. Okay, yeah, good. you have a bunch of songs that were already things. However, number one, they actually appeared in the movie, and number two, they fit where they were inserted in the movie. It doesn't just seem like someone happened to have an iPod on a Bluetooth speaker that, that was happened to be playing during the shot and fucking Justin Lin or Mick G happened to say, no, no, leave it in, leave it in. I, you know what? It, God help me. I can already feel, feel a little part of my soul begging for mercy to not be killed by admitting this. Michael Bay movies generally have really good scores and really good incidental music. They either kind of pick, if it's incidental music, it fits the tone of the scene. And, you know, if you're going to go with a grandiose explosion-gasm of a movie, you might as well have a score that suits it. And for all the myriad of where do I begin things wrong with the Transformers movies? <laughs> okay, 
the score works. I don't have just like random modern rock by Fuel or Papa Roach or whatever shitty band happens to be on the director's iPod at the moment screaming into my ear. Um, it feels ap- it feels apropos. That's something that that Beverly Hills Cop kind of got right by having the Pointer Sisters do the sound do the soundtrack by having the synth score and everything. It all worked. In this movie, it's like it's, they just they just figured that eh, not going to matter how we insert the theme or how we orchestrate it. People will like it because hey, Beverly Hills Cop theme. I think, I, I, and um, everything Sean said is great and true, and it's so, and, and I'm glad we did talk about the soundtrack, how important the soundtrack is in the first one, and how every song on it is A, great, B, fits, fits that part of the movie that, that it's inserted. Um, the third one was made without any care, and it's, we say this a lot on this show, this is an example of just trying to get a movie out to the public because it's name the, the brand name sells. So here's an example. Uh, the UFC puts on a show. It doesn't really matter who the fighters are because it's the UFC brand name, the UFC brand name that people are buying. And, you know, they know that if they go to the UFC show, they will see fairly young men and some, and some young women punch each other in the face a lot in a cage at the very least. That's what you're paying for, and it doesn't matter that the fighters are interchangeable in many ways. Um, you know, you'd hope that they're not, but ultimately, you're, it's a bonus if you're actually buying the show to see a particular fighter, but most people are going because they, because they like the brand. The brand makes money. Um, movies are much the same way. Uh, you can now... Just like with the UFC, you could have a card that's put together with care and with thought, where you have really great matchups and really interesting fights, and you know, and it's got a lot of star individual star power on it. Where not only does the brand itself sell, but the fighters are brands themselves. You know, your Conor McGregor's, your Diaz brothers, your Ronda Rousey's, etc., and they also sell the card. Then you have some cards that are just you know, run by the strength of the fact that they happen to have the USC brand on it, and that's it. Uh, movies are, again, uh, marketed in, in very much the same way, and that is to say, if a movie makes enough money, whether or not the thing is trash, you now have a successful brand that sells, and when you have people that don't have a tremendous amount of integrity... <laughs> In the film industry, they will allow trash to get produced because they know the trash will sell. And that is the unfortunate uh, story of the Beverly Hills Cop franchise. That is to say, they had a very successful brand that they just kept churning things out on because they knew they were known moneymakers. And it's funny because... uh, this last one, made, the, the budget was $50 million, and it barely made twice its budget. Uh, the box office was 119 That's a drop-off of $200 million from the previous two movies. Um, and I think that, that goes to the amount of time and care that was used to, to put the movie out in the first place. It was just Paramount, Paramount Pictures going, 
yeah, people will go see it anyway because Eddie Murphy is a brand. Beverly Hills Cop is a brand, so people will go see it and not really think about what it is that they're putting out there. So that's really my last word on this. Uh, Sean, if, you know, if there's anything else you want to add to that real quick, be my guest. Otherwise, let's get into plugs. Did I lose you, Sean? Oh, hang on, hang on. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Sorry, I had to take it off mute. Um, um, yeah, absolutely yeah. see the first movie. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, if you happen to stumble across the second one someplace, give it a look. It's not bad. I don't dare call it essential, though. On the other hand, when it comes to the third one, really all it is is it's the end of an era for Eddie Murphy as an adult-oriented comedic actor. Um, and that's really about all the significance there is to it. Otherwise, there's nothing about the movie itself that's particularly memorable. Uh, it's not really bad, avoided bad, but just it's wholly unremarkable and not very memorable. So there you have it. Um, that's three movies discussed in just a scotch under two hours. Uh, let's go into plugs. All right, you want to go this first? Week <laughs> this week on the Rattleism Broadcasting Network, um, I will be on the Monday edition of Source Material, where I'll be with Jesse Starcher, and we'll be talking uh, the Hulk story, um, Future Imperfect, not the Secret Wars shitty version, but... <laughs> But the, uh, the the last run of the writers and artists that uh, came on right before I think it was Greg Pak, who of course gave us the you know the infamous and very spectacular uh, Planet Hulk series that's led in, that led into World War Hulk, one of the best Hulk stories ever written. Um, in any case, uh, I wasn't talking about either one of those two. I was talking Future Imperfect, the good old Maestro. So check that out Monday nine o'clock, I believe. Uh, right here on the Rattle Engine Broadcasting Network. This Thursday, March 3rd, uh, we will, the Metal Hammer of Doom is back. We will be reviewing For All Kings. In the archives, uh, last week, we, uh, we had our review for Deadpool, and the Metal Hammer of Doom, uh, we reviewed Avantasia Ghost Lights. So go ahead and check that out in the archive. Uh, right now... The uh, Everyone Loves the Bad Guys series is on uh, hiatus for the foreseeable future. Instead, go ahead and check out our new Friday feature from my old partner of the PC Live era, Mr. John Brodigan. He's got a new podcast that's up on YouTube called uh, Every Joe, and he's doing the politics thing. Uh, you'll love it if you're a Republican. You'll hate it if you're a Democrat. So we'll have uh, a new Every Joe podcast uh, this week summer, summarizing the Nevada caucuses and the South Carolina primary. Trump 2016, yo. All right, um, in the far, far future, or not so far, far future as the case may be, um, oh, also this Saturday, FYI, I'm on the latest edition of, of the WrestleCast. Uh, it'll be titled 2006, the story. It'll also feature a picture of... Uh, Alicia Fox pouring orange soda on herself. All will be explained. (laughs) 
all you need to know. Alicia Fox pouring orange soda on herself. Hilarity will ensue. In any case, um, yeah, go ahead. So Friday, every show, Saturday, WrestleCast, Monday, Source Material, and then Metal Hammer a few months Thursday. Uh, for those of you who are itching and scratching for new movie reviews, uh, Wednesday, March 9th, uh, Robert Winfrey and I will be back after a two-week break. Uh, we'll be reviewing London Has Fallen. The week after that, we'll be reviewing Zootopia. Uh, March 10th, you will be having a second week in a row. No long road to ruin. We had to switch weeks. Um, so we'll be doing the Metal Hammer of Doom annual cover show. Yes, covers three, Army versus Navy. The time is now. So uh, myself and Robert Cooper will load up the show on covers that we like, and a fun time will be had by all. So when is the long road to ruin back? Aren't you glad you asked? I have an answer for you. So Wednesday we're reviewing Disney's new animated feature, uh, Zootopia, and in to keep with the synergy of uh, animated features, myself and Mr. Comer here will be reviewing the Madagascar series, Circus, Circus, Afro Circus. So um, Zootopia, Wednesday, March 16th, and then March 17th, The Long Road to Ruin, Madagascar. And one more quick plug. The week after that, uh, Robert Winfrey and I will be reviewing Daredevil the entire season all at once, no breaking it into four shows, because who's got that kind of time? Um, we will just do a, a two-hour show breaking down all that Daredevil Punisher electric goodness. That's March 23rd. March 24th, Robert Winfrey and I will be back. No Metal Hammer of Doom, no Long Road to Ruin. Instead, we'll be doing a special feature uh, in celebration of the new Batman vs. Superman movie that's coming out called in defense of Man of Steel. Did you like it when I defended the Big Bang Theory? Well, you're going to love it when I defend Man of Steel. It'll be a gas. Fun time will be had by all. And then on Friday, because we're all about fairness on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network, Gavin Napier will be a special guest here. He's taken over the place. He's going to rule with an iron fist, and he's going to bring you the case against Man of Steel. So while I'm actually at the movie watching Batman vs. Superman, he's going to be right here on the Rattles and Broadcasting Network screaming into the, e in, into the ether, uh, into the nether regions of the world, why Man of Steel is the worst thing ever captured on film. Uh, the following week, we'll review it, Batman vs. Superman, on March 30th. And in celebration of that, The Long Road to Ruin will return and we will be talking about the Dark Knight Return animated movies, parts one and two. And then I'm going to WrestleMania, and that's all you need to know about that. So that's all my shows for the foreseeable future from here to the end of March. Sean, what do you got going on in your world? Okay, I've only got a short time to do this, so I'm going to get through the can. Um, granted, he was not able to do our title card this week, but please go and support our wonderful friend, uh, comic book scholar, and all-around great guy and super title card artist, Benjamin J. Cologne. Uh, go support uh, his independently created and created and produced comics, Soul Exodus. Uh, inquire about commissions. 
check out his sketchbook Saturday work and and so so much more on Twitter at SoulXO S O U L E X O and at www.soulxo.com. Uh in the meantime, uh other updates. Uh the power of three. Yes, it is a reality. I have pushed it back just a little bit, but with good reason. I have found an actual proper recording studio. I just need some time to get together the software, a little bit of additional hardware, and just learn the ins and outs of it. I would like to thank the good folks at Gangplank Avondale and Gangplank Chandler here in the Phoenix area um, for being such wonderful creative outlets. Um, so that will be coming to you, look for it, the first Tuesday in March. That is going to be the debut of The Power of Three, hosted by myself, alongside my two long, long-time best friends in the world, uh, Jeremy Holsoff and Ann Alberti. Uh, it's going to be a lighter and positive, more look at this nerdy life that we all enjoy why we love the things we love, and also little gateways for those people who are looking to explore geek and nerd culture but maybe don't know where to start. Um, while I'm at it, I would like to thank not only both of them for their time and being willing to research and being so enthusiastic about doing this together, but uh, I would also be remiss if I didn't throw a quick shout-out out to um, another one of the people that has got to be quite possibly my best friend in the entire world, uh, who has provided some invaluable guidance, feedback, hints, and encouragement. Um, my very good friend, someone who's actually listened to the show a few times, uh, Scarlet, has given me some great behind-the-scenes hints, um, tossed me toward a couple of good uh, a couple of good publishing outlets, given me some advice on possibly putting together a website for the Power of Three. Um looking immensely forward to it. I'm really jazzed by the collaboration. And I think you're all going to love it at least as much as I do. And really, plug-wise, that's about it. So until next week, by all means, folks, never dull your colors for someone else's campus. All right. Thank you, Sean. A couple last bits of uh, information. Check out the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network Facebook page. Uh, Give it a like. Give it a whirl. Give it a swirl. Um, you can check me out on Twitter at M-A-R-K-R-A-D-U-L-I-C-H. That's my first and last name. Don't wear it out. So I'm at Mark Rattledge on Twitter. It's a great place to contact me, make suggestions, ask me questions, etc. You can also uh, friend me on Facebook. Uh, why not? Everybody who's a fan of this show does. Uh, so, so join them. Join me in friending on Facebook and send me questions and compliments. Um, I'm at Mark. I'm uh, Mark Radlich, LCSW. That stands for Licensed Clinical Social Worker. I am your, uh, as I said, your mandated reporter. And lastly, um, many of our Long Road to Ruin shows and all of our movie reviews are currently being uploaded to YouTube as an alternative for people to uh, listen to them. Uh, just no, no faces. I, this 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 mug don't belong on no TV. Uh, just just static picture and the sound of my sultry voice, uh, along with my good friends Robert Winfrey, Sean Comer, et cetera, et cetera. So that's Mark Rattledge on YouTube, Mark Rattledge on Twitter, 
and the Radledge and Broadcasting Network on Facebook and Mark Radledge LCSW on Facebook because I am a brand. I just gave myself double thumbs up in an audio format. I think I've said enough. So uh, that being said, join us uh, in a couple of weeks for the latest edition of Long Road to Ruin. Be well, be safe, and behave.